So flip to Romans. Our sermon text is Romans 2, 17 to 29. And uh, you may want to put your finger in Deuteronomy 30 uh, in, in later, but we'll get to that. Romans um, chapter 2, verse 17. Heart circumcision is our message. Let us start first by reading that text. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest in the law and make your boast in God. You know his will and approve the things that are more excellent because you are instructed in the law. You are confident that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, and a teacher of babes, uh, who have the full content of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach not to steal, do you steal? You who say not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? As it is written, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision indeed has merit if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteousness of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Will the uncircumcised one who is righteous by nature, if he fulfills the law, not judge you who, by the letter of the law and circumcision, violate the law? He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is external in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, and not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we have assembled as your polis, your ecclesia, the city of God, in order to worship you, um, to fellowship with one another, and, and to be reminded of your covenant promises as we seek to carry your grand mission into the world. We ask and pray that your spirit would enlighten us and enliven us for the glory of your Son. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So this morning we're going to look at the rest of chapter 2, and this is a further elucidation or expansion. Um, Paul's going to make it clear what he's been talking about already in the first part of the chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Now keep in mind that Paul is building a very strong argument all the way into chapter 3, and you all, you know, Romans 3.23, you memorize it as a kid if you go to church camp, etc. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's where all of this is going. And he's going to consign all men and women, and, and you two kids, to sin, which is the falling short of the glory of God. But in the context of that sin, Paul spends his time sorting out some of the complexities of the Jewish-Gentile relationship. Um, since Christ died and was raised, what does that mean for the people of God? Um, how does that relate to Israel and Israel's covenant with God in the Old Testament? How do, how do all these things sort of piece together? Um, who is part of the people of God? And how do you know someone is a part of the, the people of God? And what does this newfound covenantal composition mean for people with very different backgrounds? Uh, Romans sorts out the relational strain that no doubt the Roman Christians were dealing with in their churches. Um, when you have a hyper, super religious person who grew up in church their entire life 
come and then uh, you meet the, uh, the pagan moralist who just converted to Christ, whose lifestyle was rather um, obscene, shall we say. What does that do? How does that relationship meld together? And that's essentially what the Roman church was dealing with. Now, as far as this passage is concerned, um, Paul has to deal with one very difficult, nearly incredulous problem. Israel, covenantally speaking, failed in their special calling and vocation. Israel had failed. Their job, and this is repeated all throughout Isaiah, was to be a light to the nations. And not only, that was repeated several times, by the way, in Isaiah. Um, and they were to exhibit the righteousness and justice of God. Way back in Deuteronomy 30, which I will reference later, God had set before them life and prosperity, death and disaster. That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. And God says to them in covenant, this is not a difficult thing for you. Uh, I'm setting before you life and death. Choose wisely. What, what are you going to uh, do? What, what's the path you're going to choose? This is not too hard of a thing, he says. Uh, for them, it was, uh, <laughs> you think about it in, the, in this way, God's covenant isn't unreasonable, nor is it capricious. Uh, God doesn't function in those terms. It was placed before Israel, and they only needed to believe it. That's all they needed to do. They knew what ought to be done, but did they desire to do it? That's the question we're going to answer later. They knew what ought to be done, but did they desire to do it? So Israel had been sent into exile 500 years before Christ was born, and Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene. He comes into the Jewish world of the first century, declaring this great and final jubilee announcement that the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. God is becoming king in this brand new way, and that Israel will now be reconstituted uh, under his authority so that they can have heart circumcision in order to truly be faithful to the covenant so that the world in turn would be blessed. That's the logic of the Gospels. Jesus is saying the kingdom is here. There's a new paradigm happening. Israel is now going to be reconstituted under me. Why did Jesus choose 12 disciples? There were 12 tribes of Israel. 12 sons, right? That They were the ones. So when Jesus gets 12 disciples, he's making a strong statement. Israel is now being reconstituted. There's a reallocation of what it means to be Israel, what it means to be the people of God. And all of that is so that the world can be blessed. That was the whole point of his covenant with Abraham, which we'll cover uh, in chapter 4. So Paul has to sort this new reality out. So to reiterate, God had chosen Abraham making a covenant with him, which included the covenant sign of circumcision. And thus, he chose Israel, right? Abraham's, you have Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob is the father of the 12 sons of, who would later become the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, if you recall the story, Jacob had a, quite the epic wrestling match, not cavalier by any means, uh, with, with God, presumably the pre-incarnate Jesus. Uh, and... and um, Jacob's hip was touched, the socket of his hip, so he functioned with a limp, and uh, in that moment, Jacob asks for this blessing, and uh, Jesus, presumably, essentially says to him, um, well, I'm going to change your name to Israel. So Jacob is Israel. 
and then Israel has 12 sons, and that's kind of how that's constituted. So Abraham uh, is given the sign, the sign, the sign of the covenant is circumcision, and thus he chooses Israel as a people to carry forth the law of God as a problem-solving gift of grace to offer, uh, offer solutions to the world's plight. Think of the law in terms of that. It's a problem-solving gift of grace. That's what the law is. So the great problem, as Paul sees it, is this. The solution carriers, Israel was chosen to be solution carriers, they have become part of the problem. That's his whole argument in chapter 2. So let's look at our text, and you can just follow along, and I'm going to make observations as we go. In verse 17, Paul affirms the three basic pillars of ancient Judaism. Monotheism, there is only one God. Election, God had chosen Israel. And Torah, the law, God had given. Those are the three basic pillars of ancient Judaism. Paul is not being sarcastic here, but he's affirming the truth in order to make his point. Israel believed in the one true God. That was their confession. The Shema, the hero Israel, um, that's central to what it meant to be an Israelite. They believed in the one true God. They were chosen by this one true God. And since the one true God chose them, he also gave them his law word too as an act of grace an act of covenant mercy. Here's how you should live. As a consequence, he states in verse 18 here, that because of the covenant, they know the will of God, approvingly speaking well of God's truth. And this rests on the law itself being given to them as part of the covenant. So given this direct revelation and given God's grace um, in electing them, Israel felt confident in their role to guide the blind, to give light to those in darkness, to instruct fools who can't get their life together, uh, to teach children the way they should go, and all of that was based on, according to verses 19 and 20, possessing the knowledge and truth of God's law. So think of it this way. God brings you into covenant. He gives you his gracious law, tells you how this is a way of life now. This is how my people follow me. This is how justice is done in the public square. This is how the family is to function. This is how this whole sphere of life is supposed to go. And they know this. They know it's light. It is true. They speak well of it. But then part of that, part of that whole uh, paradigm is, well, now you have to actually do it. <laughs> Christians, you know God's word, but you actually have to do it. That's where it becomes rather difficult. It's easy to affirm the truth of God's word. It's easy to recite the Heidelberg Catechism. It's easy to confess your sins, but are you going to be obedient? So there's a problem. Mere possession of the law doesn't guarantee that the terms and conditions of the law will be carried out. Paul continues his point from the beginning of the chapter. Those who know the right thing to do, do the wrong thing. This problem, they know what's right and they do the wrong thing, which Paul will get to later in Romans 7. They know the right thing, but they do the wrong thing. Before teaching others, you should teach yourself, right? Before you preach against theft, you shouldn't steal. Verse 21, 
Whether it's idolatry or adultery, you can't be a hypocrite. Verse 22, if you're going to rightfully boast in the law, why would you presume that it doesn't apply to you and thus you go and break it? Verse 23, in fact, just as Isaiah and Ezekiel, uh, for those of you who like to write down verses to look up later, Isaiah 52.5 and Ezekiel 36.22, just like Isaiah and Ezekiel had said, the reason the name of God is blasphemed is because the Israelites gave them every reason to do so. Okay, uh, This has a lot to do with the church today, as we'll see. Uh, as we were praying earlier in, in, in Chris's prayer, we think about why is it that God's name is blasphemed? Well, why was it blasphemed in the Old Covenant? And why does Paul pick that up in the New Testament? It's blasphemed because the people of God aren't doing what the people of God are supposed to do. For the rest of the passage, Paul pounds his argument right into the ground. Circumcision, which is the sign of the covenant, the very sign that indicates to the parties involved that the, if the terms and conditions of the law are not fulfilled, then the negative sanctions of the law are imposed. Circumcision is, is a positive thing, he says, if you keep the law. That's the only relationship in the old covenant. The sign of the covenant is a positive thing if the covenant's being fulfilled. However, if you break the law like glass, it's shattered, and it as, it's as if the Jew has become this uncircumcised Gentile, verse 25. So follow his, his train of thought there. In other words, the, the sign is actually a non-sign or a negative sign because to whom much is given, much is required. And if you don't follow it, you'll be cut off, which is what the act of circumcision in the Old Testament intended to illustrate. I should hasten to add, because, well, what preacher speaks on this, but modern-day versions of circumcision are much, much more harmful and much different than the ancient sign given to Abraham, but that's a different discussion for a different day. Or over lunch, why not? So this being the case, it follows then that if a Gentile keeps the covenant law in terms of a genuine Holy Spirit-driven pursuit, his physically uncircumcised state is counted as circumcision. That's verse 26. So you track in Paul's argument here. In other words, speaking to Christians here, which is what I argued last week, Paul is sorting through the Christian Gentiles, the Christian Jews, sitting in this church with difficulties. What about the old covenant sign? What about following the law? All these issues that they're wrestling with, Paul is speaking to Gentile Christians who are not by nature in the covenant like the Jews were. Okay, when you're born a Gentile, you're not in the covenant. Okay, you have to come in from the Gentile into the covenant. Well, in Paul's day, it's through baptism. But even in the Old Testament, if you were a pagan, if you were uh, you know, someone who a lot of people were brought into the covenant, think of... Um, uh, uh, Joshua, I think it was in the Old, old Covenant. Uh, 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 he was a Kenizzite, I believe. There are other uh, people brought into the covenant who were brought in by circumcision. But if you want to be into the covenant, uh, you have to come in certain ways. If that's true, though, wouldn't it follow that a Gentile who is uncircumcised is brought in and counted as covenant faithfulness 
But not only that, he would stand in judgment over the Jew who has the law, has the sign of the covenant, but actually violates it. So where's the boasting then? Haha, we Jews have the sign of the covenant, we have the law, the Gentile doesn't, the Gentile comes in with the Holy Spirit, can fulfill the obligations of the law because of the Spirit inside of him or her, and yet the Jew boasts, but why would he boast? He violates the law. That's his point in verse 27. So Paul finishes by wrapping up his argument, which is rooted in the Old Testament, by saying in verse 28 that Jewishness, which is shorthand for people of God by covenant, is not built on the outward sign of circumcision, which was, again, in the New Testament, baptism replaces that, but rather is based on the inward circumcision of the heart. Look at verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit and not by the letter. His praise is not from man, men, but from God. The true circumcision, which is what he says in Philippians 3, is when the Spirit cuts the heart. It's not the letter outside, but the Spirit inside. By the way, for those of you who love puns, this one's for you, Jacqueline. At the end here, the word Judah, which is where the word Jew comes from, a Jew is someone from Judah. That's kind of how that connection is. The word Judah means praise in Hebrew. It means praise. And notice at the end, he concludes, uh, his praise is not from men, but from God. Here's what he's saying, and it's a pun in, in the Greek language, but it, it's not so obvious in English. He essentially concludes that the person who can truly receive the praise, the person who can actually receive the title Jew, is one who fulfills the Torah, the law, through a circumcised heart by the Spirit, not the one who bears the fleshly sign and only the fleshly sign. His praise is not from men. It's from God. God gives meaning to the word Jew, not the letter, not the outside. So, as the apostle seeks to sort out the ethnic tensions, he does so by dealing with the ethical tensions. Um, the ethnic tensions have to be sorted out by ethical solutions. Paul's theology, which is deeply rooted in the Old Testament, um, Old Testament theology, not least places like Deuteronomy 30, um, Jeremiah 4.4, if you want to look that one up later, Steve read Ezekiel 36, all of that rests on this principle, okay? This is the main thrust of where we're going. Obedient hearts are more important than circumcised foreskins. And we don't think about that often in our culture, but in the first century, this is what they had to deal with in their church. Our, our, our frustrations in church are, you know, what should we bring for food for our fellowship meal? Or... Or how, how do we fit everybody in a house? How do we, how do we you know, strategize locally? What should we do locally? Um, how do we crush this ma mask Nazism that's going on? <laughs> Those types of things. But in the first century, this was a huge topic of conversation. And Paul says obedient hearts are always better all the time rather than this discussion on circumcised foreskins. That's the point. 
The privileges of Jewish identity do not derive, nor have they ever derived, from the ethnic marker of circumcision, but instead from an interior, spirit-driven life lived before the face of God. The person who is praised by God, who is approved by God, not praised by men, or the person who is justified by Christ, the Messiah, this person bears the marks of a circumcised heart by the Spirit who fulfills the law in obedience to God through that very means. God gives you His Spirit. And when He gives you His Spirit, you are um, animated to go and obey God. That's how Christianity is supposed to function. So we live in according... We live according to the Spirit, not the flesh, which Paul will spell out more later in in the book of Romans. So the main argument to emphasize this passage again is this. The Jews may possess the Torah, and indeed they may have knowledge of it. I mean, some of these guys would have the entire book of Isaiah memorized. So you talk about having a knowledge of the Scriptures, just being able to repeat 66 chapters. That's incredible. They have knowledge of it, but the fact remains they haven't kept it. Okay, think of this in terms of modern-day church. We we gather, we sing, and we praise God, and we have our confessions of faith, and we look to God's Word, but that's never the issue. The outward stuff is never the issue. The issue is the obedience of the heart. So they may have the covenant sign of their father Abraham, circumcision of the foreskin, but they don't have the circumcision of the heart. That's what you need. And this is precisely the reason why they are completely without excuse, why they are condemned, why they are condemned by the birth pangs of judgment, which happened, remember, AD 70 was a looming threat. That was coming. And what Paul intends to argue is not that the Gentiles have to be elevated to this level of the Jews, but rather the Jews have to be brought low. Why? Because they too are in Adam. They too need the Spirit. They too need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They too need forgiveness of sins. They too need Christ's blood over against the blood of bulls and goats. They need to be brought low. They are in Adam. Gentiles are in Adam. All are consigned to sin. That's what Paul's point is. The only way out is being in Christ. So obedient hearts are far more meaningful and far more uh, important than circumcised flesh. You should know that's not Paul's invention. Moses taught the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you have your Bible and you want to flip there, I'll read it. But Deuteronomy 30 verses 5 and 6 spells this out. And this is just one place. There are other places, by the way. Deuteronomy 30, 5 through 6, uh, Moses prophesizes a return uh, from exile. He says this, The Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul so that you may live. Now what is going on here? What's all this talk of circumcised hearts? Just like baptism in the new covenant, circumcision in the old covenant was a pointer to the covenant reality. 
Okay? It, wasn't, it wasn't the reality itself, but a sign of the reality, a road sign on the way to the covenant city. This is why I go against the grain. Apologize if this, ahead of time if this is offensive to you, but I go against the modern day baptism celebration which says, well, this is about me. I made a profession of faith. I did this, and it's my day to celebrate that I am now in Christ. No, it's not about you at all, and we're sorry if we made it about you, but it's not. Baptism is God's sign. It's God's sign that is to be dispensed, and it's a pointer to the reality. So many people, you, you ask these questions today with modern, modern Christians and evangelicals, you know, when did, when, when did you accept Jesus into your heart? As if he's just standing at the door politely begging you. He will break down the door if he must, because that's what the Spirit does. We don't get to choose Christ first as if we're in this position of neutrality. No, we're dead in our sins, and Christ breaks down the door by his grace and drags us out with our, by our collars, essentially. That's the grace of God. It's an aggressive grace of God, and that's indeed what um, Jesus says in, in John chapter 6 about the Father drawing. Uh, it's actually dragging is the better translation of the word. So we have to get over this thing where baptism's about us. You shouldn't have to go back in your life and say, well, I'm a Christian because I was baptized. No, you're a Christian because you've been brought into the covenant. Baptism is your sign. Don't trust the sign, trust the reality. So God had always been, even in the Old Testament, interested in what goes on in the hearts of men because the hearts of man is what drives us. It is the heart which gives you the desire to accomplish X, Y, or Z. It is your heart which dictates the rest of your being. We went over this in the emotions series, by the way. So don't miss this. Whatever your heart wants, your mind will start to rationalize. Your emotions will start to sensationalize. And you will, your will will choose. And your hands will then carry it out. Follow the train of thought. Your heart, whatever your heart wants, Proverbs 4, it's the wellspring of life. The heart is the central component to your being. Whatever your heart wants, your mind will rationalize, your emotions will sensationalize, your will will choose, your hands will carry out. Thomas Cranmer said something similar. He once said that whatever the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. So the great battle in the Old Testament, indeed the very thing the gospel seeks to rectify, is the problem of sin. When the heart is poisoned, the rest of the body, both the physical and the metaphysical, follows suit. Your body, your mind, your will follows where the heart goes. So why all this talk about circumcised hearts? Well, what is a circumcised heart? Here's the answer. A circumcised heart means that you want what you should. A circumcised heart, how do you know if you have one? You want what you should. You want what you should. Listen to Colossians 2, 9 through 12. Listen carefully. For in him lives all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all authority and power. Notice he says all authority and power. 
not just the head of the church, John MacArthur. He's the head of the state. Verse 11, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith of the power of God, who has raised him from the dead. What Paul argues here in Romans 2 and what he affirms in Colossians 2 is that the cross of Christ is the final circumcision which deals with the great problem of sin. No one talks like that usually. What's the cross of Christ? What does it mean to you? Well, it's circumcision. That is awkward. Tell that to your friends, right? What does the cross mean? Well, it's actually about circumcision. That's what Paul says in Colossians 2. It's the circumcision of Christ. What does he mean? The cross is the circumcision of Christ. What is, what is circumcision? Let's back up. It's a bloody sign invoking an oath, which meant that the person taking the oath would undergo a covenantal death, a literal cutting off from the people of God, them and their children, their posterity, if they don't fulfill the obligations of the oath. You remember the dream that Abraham had with the the smoking pot and the animals that were split in half and only God walked through it? God was essentially saying, this is an oath ceremony and if the oath isn't fulfilled, may what happened to these animals happen to me. People took oaths a lot more seriously back then. Today it's, Oh, I signed a contract, and then the lawyer gets loopholes so you can get out of the contract, and there's all this messy stuff. But what did circumcision mean with Abraham and his children for all the males on the eighth day circumcised? Jesus himself was. What did it mean? It was a covenant sign. If I don't fulfill the obligations of the covenant, may I be cut off from the covenant. May I be treated that way. There was covenantal death. So if Israel possessed the knowledge of the Torah, was called to be a light to the nations, and they themselves messed it up, then what hope do we have? The answer is only Christ. Children, what hope do we have? Only Christ. The death of Christ on the cross was the full-on wrath of God against sin placed on the Son of God. The covenant sanctions of Israel's disobedience, indeed the Gentile world's disobedience, indeed your and my disobedience, no less, was placed on him. That's what the cross is. This is why Paul calls it the circumcision of Christ. It was the curses of the covenant placed on Christ. The, the major problem of mankind is that our heart doesn't naturally want to do what it, want, what it should. So what does Jesus do? He dies on the cross. What does God do? Pour out his wrath on the cross. What does that mean legally? Your sin is there. The disobedience, the, the hitting your sibling or your sister or taking things that don't belong to you, the bad things that come out of your mouth, the unrighteous thoughts that come into your head, the actions we do to stab someone in the back, the gossip, the slander, all of it is sent to Christ on the cross. All of those things represent our inability for our hearts to do what it should, and it goes to Christ on the cross. In other words, he was cut off so Israel wouldn't be. He was cut off so that we wouldn't be. That's why Paul can call the circumcision of Christ. 
So the sins of the flesh, which are simply the sins of the heart made manifest, are put off of us and onto Christ. This substitutionary transaction is the circumcision of the heart that we receive by faith. Colossians 2 is essentially saying this. Let me reiterate. In Christ, here's what you get. The cross is the circumcision of Christ, which circumcises your hearts because the penalty of the oath is on him, not you. You don't have to die, right? That's Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation now for those in Christ. You don't have to die. You don't have to suffer the, dis- the, the, the sanctions of the oath. Christ has done it in your place. But guess what comes after? Baptism. Baptism, he says, is now the sign because we are buried with Christ in a covenantal death and raised with Christ in covenantal obedience. This is just another way of saying, and we'll, we'll end here, the, the gospel cuts your heart so that you, being a spirit-led person, can carry out the justice of God into the world with your desires and your duty walking together. John Newton's hymn number three says, Our pleasures and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Put it differently, uncircumcised hearts meant an inability to fulfill the law's demands. The heart simply couldn't do what it ought to do. But what happens when your heart has been circumcised by the death of Christ? The heart is cut by the Spirit, and now it wants to do the thing that it's supposed to do, indeed the thing that it was designed to do, fulfill the covenant, to fulfill your end of the covenant. That's all we are. Christians are just covenant fulfillers. God says this is what justice is happening, what it should be. Injustice is happening in its place. So what do we Christians need to do? Go and deal with it. Knock on that civil magistrate's door until they have to put a lock on it. Not to, you know, be aggressive, but to insist on the justice of God. This means that our mission, the church's mission, is to be the very thing Israel couldn't be. To be a guide for the blind. Are there blind people out there right now? They're running the show. (laughs) Kind of need help. To be a light for the blind, light for those um, in darkness. Instructors of the foolish, politicians just being one example teachers of our children, and so on. That is the calling. We, the Christian church, are now Israel for the world, heralding the good news that God is faithful, God is just, and God does deliver people from the grip of sin. So we must preach, and we must establish the justice and dominion of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you have been exceedingly good and gracious, and we're humbled by this fact. Uh, Romans is such a difficult book in some regard, but it's also such a practical book when we consider what it is your apostle was, was telling us, that we need a circumcised heart. We need our heart to be cut by the Spirit. We need regenerate hearts, renewed hearts, uh, Christians who are born again, and not just born again, but living differently. We know the apostle says earlier in Romans, that the just shall live by faith. And that word live is key. We should live 
by faith, a faithfulness committed to your justice, committed to the authority of Christ, who is the head of all things. So we ask and pray that your spirit would do a whole lot of circumcising of hearts today because we need it. We need the repentance. We need the revival. We need the faithfulness. We need your justice. So we cry out to you this day. In Christ's name, amen.